This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. This is part one of a heartfelt two-part series about ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by Bridge Bio, a biotech company that works on developing treatments for rare diseases. At On Rare, we explore what it's like to live with a rare disease. Not only do we get to learn a little bit about the science, but we also get to hear from people living with these challenging conditions. I'm your host, Mandy Rorig, a member of the patient advocacy team at Bridge Bio, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy. This is the first part of a two-part series about ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. ALS is a fatal neurodegenerative disease that affects the nerves of the brain and the spinal cord. The cause is unknown and there is no cure. We will talk with Beth and Holly, two women whose husbands have died of ALS. Before we visit with Beth and Holly, David will have a conversation with Dr. Rachel Grove to give us a little bit more information and some insight about what ALS is and how it impacts the body. Hi, David. Hi, Mandy. I'm very pleased to welcome Rachel Groth to the podcast. Rachel is a scientist and leads drug discovery at Bridge Bio and Affiliates. She's a wonderful, intelligent colleague, and I always learn from talking to her. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, David. Great to be here. So ALS is an interesting rare disease, which is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's become fairly well known through the ice bucket challenge, but I think most people don't really understand what ALS is. If you could just walk us through the basics, we would really appreciate it. So what is ALS? Yeah, so ALS, also referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease or motor neuron disease, is a devastating, fatal neurodegenerative disease. It's characterized by the selective and progressive loss of motor neurons, which are cells in your brain and spinal cord that control your muscle movement. The average age at the time of diagnosis is 55 years old. There are about 15,000 people living with ALS in the U.S., and it's estimated that you know, by the time they start to experience the signs and symptoms of the disease, 50 to 70 percent of their motor neurons are already non-functional. And as the disease progresses, it results in paralysis of nearly all skeletal muscles, hmm. um, really robbing people of their independence. And death typically results within three to five years after onset, most often from respiratory failure. Yeah, it is devastating and devastatingly rapid. Rachel, there are different kinds of neurons and ALS has an impact on motor neurons. What other kind of neurons are there? Just so we know a little bit more about this. Yeah, that's a great question. So neurons are cells in, in your brain and spinal cord that control everything that you do, think, feel, etc. And so the motor neurons, as I mentioned, are those neurons that specifically control movement, but there are the neurons that you use that sense pain and touch and feeling, um, all of the neurons involved in memory, thinking, cognition, vision, etc. So basically there are specialized neurons um, throughout your nervous system that play a role in basically everything you think, feel, do. 
Would it be the case that people living with ALS lose their ability to control their muscles, but their other functions are still operational, for example, memory and cognition? That's correct. And and this is one of the very interesting things about ALS is why it is selectively targeting these motor neurons. So there are upper motor neurons, those are the neurons in your brain, and then the lower motor neurons, those in your spinal cord, and, and together forming those pathways that you know, when you decide to move are helping you move. So both voluntary movement, but also involuntary movement. Mm. What usually results in death is um, respiratory failure. So, you know, the muscles that are allowing you to breathe are affected. Mm -hmm. How does ALS uh, stop the motor neurons from working correctly? What, what happens? Yeah, there are many different theories. In general, we know that the motor neurons are selectively dying. We don't know exactly the cause of why they are dying and, and neurons don't regenerate. And so once they're lost, um, they're lost. And without those cells to control your muscle movement, you're no longer able to, to move. What do we know about why some people get ALS and others don't? What are the causes or the possible causes of ALS? We don't know for sure. There are some hints based on the biology of a protein called TDP43, which we know um, accumulates in the cell body of motor neurons, and that might cause some detrimental effects. But that's just one of the features, and we don't know the driving force. In nearly all cases of ALS, the disease seems to occur at random with no clearly associated risk factors, no family history of the disease. Um, there are a small percentage, about 5 to 10% of all ALS cases that are familial, which means that an individual inherits the disease from a parent. But again, you know, this is a very small percentage. It's my understanding that ALS is a very challenging condition to treat. Is that because we don't really understand the disease very well, or are there known factors that make it so difficult to develop treatments for ALS? I think it's challenging for a number of reasons. As I mentioned, by the time you're diagnosed, 50 to 70% of your motor neurons, as we've estimated, are already gone. Um, and so once they're gone, getting those back becomes um, impossible. So it's really about preserving the remaining neurons that are there. The issue there is that um, the disease is so rapidly progressive. You know, the other very tricky part about ALS is the diagnosis. There's no single test that provides definitive diagnosis of ALS. It's primarily a, a diagnosis of exclusion. Unfortunately, for this type of diagnosis of exclusion, the diagnosis often takes nine to 12 months. And given that death typically occurs three to five years after onset, you know, this is another significant amount of that remaining time that one has before they even know that they have the disease. This is just so difficult for families where a member of a family is affected. It sounds like much of the disease process has been going on for a while. By the time a person is diagnosed, there have been already losses that are significant. And so far, there is really no effective treatment. And that's still true, isn't it, Rachel? Yeah, that's correct. Um, 
There are three drugs approved by the FDA for the treatment of ALS. Rilazul, which has been shown to increase survival by, you know, two to three months. Adaravone, which has been shown to reduce the decline in daily functioning. And most recently, the combination of sodium phenylbutyrate and toriurosodiol. Um, mm-hmm. These drugs appear to have really modest benefits, and so there clearly remains a dire unmet need for the development of new therapies to really transform the treatment of ALS uh, by improving survival, motor neuron function, and quality of life measures. Although there are some medicines that have been approved, they have limited value in extending life. So it's a challenging condition for both families individuals with ALS and for scientists who are trying to develop medicines that really could make a difference to patients and families. What gives us hope, though, are the increasing number of tools we have to study the basic disease biology and the number of people who are working on it, the great work from the patient advocacy groups, and our ability to utilize patient samples to to help make new discoveries. So Although there's no doubt this is an extremely challenging disease to treat, we are certainly hopeful and will continue to work uh, to find meaningful therapies for patients. Uh, Rachel, you and other scientists are the hope uh, for families, and your work is really appreciated by them and by us. Thank you very much for this very clear explanation of a complicated and highly mysterious condition. Thank you, David. I am very pleased to welcome Holly and Beth to our podcast. Before you hear from them, I should say that I've had the opportunity to have a number of conversations with them in the past. Every single one has been fascinating, emotional, and I'm really just so pleased to share their stories. Holly and Beth became known to me because they both lost their husbands to ALS. So I think we should start at the beginning, and the beginning would be what was the first thing that you or your husbands noticed? Okay, so um, for for Carl and I, we were actually he was we were diving in Indonesia, um, and he's a big diver and I'm not. I was there sitting on the beach, and um, he commented that he was having trouble zipping up his zipper on his wetsuit, and. He is an engineer and very aware of all this kind of stuff. And he never did acknowledge that also on that trip, he had trouble sealing his underwater camera and thrashed his underwater camera and ruined it, which he never actually acknowledged. But in hindsight, again, that would be hand movements that were changing for him in his right hand. And he didn't think anything of it, really. He just commented that it was weird that his zipper was troublesome. So that was spring. So then in the middle of summer, he went to the doctor for some other reason. And he happened to mention to her that there was something, there were some changes going on in his right hand. And he does a lot of computer work. And he said, I think I must have carpal tunnel. My right hand is, things are changing. And the doctor asked him, what's your pain level? And he said, zero. And she said, that's not carpal tunnel. Uh, And asked him a few more questions. And then sent him off to see a neurologist because it was not carpal tunnel. Holly, how old, I'm sorry to interrupt. How old was Carl at this point? Carl was 54 and uh, and in super good health. And I mean, he didn't ever need to go to the doctor and had never had any health problems at all. It sent him down a pathway of seeing a variety of different neurologists. And 
in fall, he had a blood test, which took some time to get the blood test results back. And then it turned out that they had gotten some results back and they had, the head neurologist had decided not to share them with Carl until his doctor could come back and talk to him about it. And so in early December, he went up to San Francisco. He said, I'm seeing another neurologist. And I happened to be home that day when he came home and he walked in the door and he said to me, I have just found out that I have ALS. And he burst into tears. And I didn't know what ALS even was. Had never heard of it. I mean, I, I knew I knew what Lou Gehrig's disease was, but he said he had ALS. And I had no idea. And I burst into tears because he was crying. And it was this complete and utter shock and sadness. And, and so I'm looking it up and, and we're both just sitting there thinking, what are we going to do now? What, what do we do with this information? That was our first experience with ALS. I didn't know anyone who had ALS. It was right before the Christmas holiday. We called our daughters and, and he shared with them that he had ALS. Then we flew to Kentucky where he's from for Christmas to share with his family, his siblings and his mom that he had ALS. And it was excruciating because what we had learned by then was that there was nothing really you could do. And they had, didn't know how long, what was going to happen, uh, what his trajectory would be. So for us, the next step was to go and get a second opinion. So Carl was going to his medical appointments and you weren't really kept up to date on them and he didn't suggest that you come. And do you have any idea why that was or is that as usual or? That's a really, that's a really good question. Um, and it, it makes sense in the framework of he and I have been together for 30 plus years yeah. by then. And he's not sick and I'm not sick. And he was taking care of business, coming to try to unravel this thorny thing of kind mm -hmm. of what was bothering him, but he had no pain. Yeah. He had no, nothing that set off any alarms for me. It turns out in hindsight that in about mid November, they had come back and said from this blood test results, from our blood results, there are like 15 things that you could have. And we're going to go through and give you a diagnosis by elimination. The last one being ALS, because if you have ALS, there's nothing we mm -hmm. can do and we don't know anything about it. So yeah. I think between, I know now between November mm -hmm. and December, when they had gone through and done all the rest of these tests, he had been reading about it and learning about it, but he didn't tell me because in Carl's optimistic way, mm -hmm. he's a super optimist. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, there was no reason to tell you and have you dragged through this worry um, while they went through this process of elimination. So maybe he was protecting you. In his way, he was protecting me, and I did not know until December 13th. Yeah. You know, the memory of that day was just, when someone asked me about ALS, I said, it's it's shocking and it's sad. And you have this feeling like the world just flipped on its head. Yeah, yeah. You're blindsided by it, and I guess that is almost always the case one way or another, even if you're, you, like Carl, had some expectation that that was a possibility. Um. I'm curious to know uh, either what Carl shared with you or what you later learned, but it seemed clear that the person giving the diagnosis said, well, there's no treatment, but did they say anything more about what, what you and Carl should expect to happen at that point? Uh what they told, what he told me on that same day was that uh, we needed to choose a comprehensive care clinic. Uh, so you would go to one place to see all the different support people that you would need uh, for this disease. 
although they don't really mm -hmm. have anything for it. Um, and they, they suggested that we mm. get a family therapist, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I love therapy. I've been in therapy. I think it's a great thing. Carl hated therapy and it was probably one of the most challenging things we did was to try to get him to go to therapy. Fortunately <laughs> for him, yeah. the person that we saw after seeing us a couple of times said, you guys have an amazing relationship. I'm happy to meet with you. But you're not you're not mm. missing any components in this particular arena that will make it harder for you to work as a team and as a family through this disease. So you were advised to go to a comprehensive care center and to get a family therapist, but it doesn't sound like you were given much of a roadmap about what to expect in the future. No. No, I, what we ended up doing, as I said, was going to get a second opinion and we went to a new, another clinic and flew to this place. And the outcome was with them. Oh yeah. You have ALS. You have it everywhere. Um, they, they actually had Carl and me go into a room and lay down on a table and they could shine a light and you could see the fasciculations in his arms and in his body and in his legs. Um, his ALS was defined as having started in his hands. And so mm -hmm. when we were there at that place, I said, well, what happens? And they said, well, typically, mm -hmm. if there is any typical, which there isn't, it would go right hand, left hand, right leg, left leg, bulbar, which is speaking and swallowing, and then diaphragm. Um, and we asked what mm -hmm. the timing was, and they said, no idea. They said, you watch it for mm -hmm. the next 12 to 18 months, and mm -hmm. the speed with which it progresses yeah. is sometimes, most of the time, often maybe, Mm. what the speed will be. <laughs> so basically they told us nothing. Yeah. And and just to make sure that I and others understand, vesiculation, what does that refer Vesiculations to? are little, they feel like little butterflies under your skin. Um, and they look like little mm. wiggles. Yeah. And some kind of like you would imagine an eye twitch. Yes. But it's throughout the whole body. It's your whole body. And some people have them and see them and feel them and some people don't, but they were mm -hmm. super visual to us, which Carl's diagnosis, you know, by elimination, but what they were able to see was he had some nerve degeneration in his neck and in his arms and in his legs. So they could see yeah. it in those three places from the beginning, yeah. but it was a very slow process. So I actually want to ask Beth to talk a little bit about, about Chris's, um, about his diagnosis because it was so different than than Carl's. Yeah, Beth. Uh, so our story, um, background to our story is that Chris was an executive administrator for a major medical center. So we were right in the thick of the medical community. He had had a disc problem probably 20 years prior with some residual foot drop. Fast forward to mid-2015-ish, his foot drop suddenly got bad. So the first thing they did was thinking it's some stenosis in the spine. They did a little surgery. Then he was having a little shoulder problem. So there were these kind of red herrings. But I would say within nine months of his diagnosis, he started having speech problems and he did a lot of public speaking. So they did some vocal cord injections. He saw a speech pathologist. Nothing seemed to work. He had had several EMGs, which is the electromyelogram, looking for neurodegeneration, but nothing was a red flag there. We were up 
skiing in the high altitude in December of 2017, and he had trouble breathing. He has a history of asthma, which is what we attributed to. Mm -hmm. Didn't think anything of, of it went back up skiing three months later happened again. And I said, well, you need to go see your pulmonologist because this doesn't make sense. And he went and had pulmonary function tests, which were greatly mm -hmm. diminished and was sent back to the neurologist that he had seen probably a year or two before. And it was at actually that visit where the fasciculations that Holly's talking about you could see full body and they said, we think you have ALS. We're going to do another EMG. I have a family history of my father had multiple sclerosis, but he was initially diagnosed with ALS. So I said very loudly that I wanted also a second mm -hmm. opinion, although I was totally convinced that he had ALS. So he was diagnosed in March of 2018. He was 67 years old. You know, was that exacerbation of the foot drop, the first sign, he was diagnosed with the bulbar form, which is because of his, his speech and his swallow. It is, to my understanding, the more aggressive and more fast moving form. Certainly, once he was diagnosed in March, I would say by June, his speech yeah. was diminished mm -hmm. to the point that he was very hard to understand. Mm -hmm. His was certainly faster moving. He was on a mm -hmm. the non-invasive vent within, I think, about four months of okay. his diagnosis. Yeah. So, Beth, the process of Chris's diagnosis was really different. And here he was the leader of a major medical center, but it sounds like the initial symptoms were kind of addressed as if they may not be related. So he had had disc problems, so I guess maybe foot drop could right. have been connected to it. But Absolutely. hard to imagine that problems with speech would be connected to uh, a disc problem. And But I wonder what you think about it now and how all of these things were viewed. I think it's probably a typical way that people are diagnosed because I don't think that ALS is at the top of anyone's list. I think it's a diagnosis of, of exclusion in that they rule out everything else. And when you kind of have this gathering of symptoms, then someone says, wow, a foot drop and then loss of voice, one wouldn't necessarily think would be related. I think what's hard is we were told, you know, average time between diagnosis and death is two to five years. It's hard to know when that clock starts, when the diagnosis is kind of elusive. My understanding about that time frame when they use it with the ALS Association and those things, they put a line in the sand that said from the yeah. time you were formally diagnosed. So um, for Carl, that would have been in December 2013. And then Beth and I have had lots of conversations and, t and talk to other people about, in hindsight, the indicators that may have been leading toward ALS. But again, as Beth says, 
it's not the first thing people even think of. And in 2013, it really wasn't. I mean, then ironically, the ice bucket challenge happened right after Carl was diagnosed. And all of a sudden, at least it was more on people's minds. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was, you know, the people had said this to me all the time. Oh, Carl's going to be, he's a gearhead and an engineer. He's going to be just like Stephen Hawking's. He could live 50 years. And people had two data points. Um, Lou Gehrig and Stephen Hawking's, you know, for people like my kids, when people would say, oh, Lou Gehrig, they, they, didn't, they didn't even know who Lou Gehrig was. You know? So time has gone by between Lou Gehrig's announcement, then Stephen Hawking's, and then now we're all of a sudden hearing a lot more about ALS. No results, nothing to be helpful, unfortunately, yet, but at least people are a little bit more aware mm-hmm. of it. So Chris had a very different diagnostic journey that took much more time with the kind of these symptoms that seemed like they may not have been related to each other. You know, it makes one wonder if because he was the head of a medical center, people were cautious about giving this kind of diagnosis also. I don't know. Yes, they were reluctant. And two, I think they were very optimistic. You know, they were suspicious of ALS. But the words that we kept hearing was, it's very slow moving. But typically, Bulbar is not slow moving. And I think one of the uphill battles, Chris was in total denial. He might have it, but it wasn't going to get him. And I think that the balance between the doctors being very optimistic and Chris wanting the whole thing to go away made it difficult to move forward in the interventions that we needed to put into place. And we were I felt like we were always behind the eight ball in terms of being prepared for the next loss of function. Yeah, I would like to get back to that because I think that's really important, Beth. But what I don't want to miss is what it was like for you and Chris when you did get the diagnosis. We got the diagnosis together. I was actually working at the hospital that day as well. And he didn't even want me to come home with him. He said, you go back to work and we'll talk about it tonight. He had unfortunately been planning to announce his retirement at the end of the week that he was diagnosed. At that point, I think he went home and and really kind of into his shell and um, didn't interact at the hospital or really at home much going forward. I think I'm a nurse. I, I understood ALS. I understood more things about it than I wanted to. Mm. But oh, my way of coping was, was to learn as much as I could about all that was available. And he really didn't want to know any of that. So I would say, you know, we were supportive of each other, but dealt with it in very parallel universes. So when you say that Chris went into a shell, what does that mean? Uh, We we have a chair in our bedroom and he kind of settled into the chair in the bedroom with his iPad. And that's where he stayed Mm. for the next year and Mm -hmm. three months, basically. And didn't talk about what was happening very much with you. Uh, I would say discussed it on a limited basis because I think discussing it made him acknowledge that it was true. You know, he he was much more, you know, we're going to get through this. And I think one of the things Holly and I experienced with both of our husbands is, you know, when they would go to the Mm -hmm. doctor's appointments, 
they would basically tell the doctors everything was fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sorry. Certainly everything was not fine. Yeah. Um, you know, and as I think, as we explore kind of the interventions, one of the hard things is just staying ahead. Yeah. And as the man in this conversation, I have to acknowledge that many of us want things to be fine. We don't want to share our pain. We think it's our responsibility to protect even our loved ones from our pain. And, and also we're no better at looking death in the face than anyone else where it's frightening for everybody. So, you know, Carl's perspective was interesting. And again, Beth and I've talked Mm -hmm. a lot about this. He lived five years beyond his diagnosis and it started in his right hand and it was very, very slow moving. So People would say to us, aren't you going to quit your job and go do all the things you want to do? And and Carl wanted to teach. He was he was teaching courses and about alternative energy and energy for undergraduate and graduate students at university. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to teach. That was mm-hmm. his choice. And my perspective on it was he gets to do whatever he wants to do. And my job is, and our you know, as a family, our job is to support whatever it is that he would like to do. And he was tired mm-hmm. and he would, and, and he Dietitian. would, you could help Carl if you didn't come at him straight on and try to help him. Um, he had some teaching assistants who started carrying all, he always had props for all the courses that he taught they would take the things to class for him so that he didn't have to drag that stuff to class for him but so his way of dealing with it was he taught for two years we traveled a lot we had already traveled as a family but i asked and i asked him where i wanted to go so we did a couple more dive trips there was one dive trip that he said i'm not going to go it's a 10-day full-on dive trip i didn't go on this one it was a boat trip where you do somewhere between 30 and 40 dives a day. He loved diving. So I said, just go. And if you do one dive a day, so what? You love the experience. And so in the end, I had to convince him to do that. We did a few more trips as a family out of the country. And then we ended up doing a lot of in-country things. He hadn't seen any of the national, a lot of the national parks and I had. So we did national park trips. He stayed active until June of 2016. And that, at which point he came home one day and sat down in a chair and, and, and then finally mm-hmm. acknowledged, yeah. well, he didn't really acknowledge, but his body made him acknowledge that mm-hmm. he was really out of breath and tired. And that's when he started actually using the non-invasive ventilator that they had given him way earlier that he would have me cover up with a towel. <laughs> not going to see it. Yeah. You can be in the house because you're going to make it be in the house, Holly, but I'm not going to deal with it and we're going to cover it up with a towel. And that happened over and over again in our experience in terms of, so that's where Chris and Carl were very similar. Um, Beth and I talked a lot about in our Mm -hmm. role, we wanted to stay ahead of the game because we knew we didn't know. What we knew was that we didn't know when it was going to change. But when something changed, we we felt like we needed to be as prepared as we could to be supportive of our spouses or our partners. Right. So in in their own way, both men wanted to continue living their lives and not look at this in the face, so to speak. And in your own way, the two of you were trying to learn your way, not to get ahead, but to keep up with what ALS was going to throw to you. 
And interestingly, our primary neurologist that we saw, it was difficult to be the family member going to some of these. They would Ours were every three months and there would be this coordinated care and you would see the neurologist and the nurse and the pulmonologist and the social worker and the physical therapist, dietitian, nutritionist, kind of all of them in one day. But um, in particular, I would come with my list of questions and stuff I wanted to ask and they would appropriately spend most of their focused time speaking to the person who has ALS. But the difficulty is when the person who has ALS says nothing's changed and they write that down and other than their weight that they can't lie about because you got to get on a scale. (laughs) It was difficult as the person who I would have all these questions and I'd want to push and I'd want to ask about, well, what about this and what about this? But they focused primarily on the patient, which I do understand, but Beth and I really agree that feedback we have given them was, this is a family disease. This is, everybody is impacted tremendously by it. And it is so unnerving and you have absolutely no idea when things are going to change. And mm-hmm. that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And the neurologist would be, they'd sit and talk to Carl about, he loved to talk to Carl about football and big data. <laughs> and I want to talk about him walking. <laughs> yeah. So they, they, those guys were happy to join together and not really look at it in the face. The neurologist, yeah. honestly, most things, most of the patients that they see, they can't help off an awful lot, and certainly the ALS patients. Well, and they have a data set that's much larger than mine, and so I really felt like I needed to defer also to the neurologist because their perspective on it was, we don't really have anything medically to be able to help mm-hmm. a person who has ALS, and so we want to give them the the grace and the opportunity to yeah. approach this disease in the yeah. way that they yeah. want to approach it. So finding a balance in there was hard, though. Beth, your experience with the healthcare providers, was that similar or different? Were you included or...? Very similar. We were fortunate to have a pulmonary doc since the reason why he lost his voice was he couldn't flow through his vocal cords because his diaphragm wasn't working. His neurologist was extremely optimistic, didn't want to give Chris bad news, but the pulmonary doc was very in his face, which he didn't like. But I felt I got much more honest responses from her than any of the other caregivers. It's a very fine line. Carl died four years ago. It's just over Mm -hmm. four years ago now. And I've had a lot of time to think about Mm -hmm. it. And while when you're in it, it's so scary and so unnerving. And yet it's finding that balance between someone's dignity and letting them go at it as they want to go at it is important. It's really important. And and as the further I get away from it, the more I understand it. I think Beth and I have talked. I think the person for me across the board in the five years that was the most helpful was a social worker that we met only when Carl was really in advanced stages. He didn't like her either. He didn't want to talk to her at all. But she was so... She was so helpful to me and to my and to my family. And I think that, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would suggest that every coordinated care get a super, super seasoned social worker yeah. who works with people who are at end stage of life and who understands ALS. That's yeah. what I would do. Yeah. 
I personally also appreciate that you want to give a person the patient respect to deal with it as they wish. And But the patient is not the only person living with the consequences of ALS. You would hope that one day we will get to the point where healthcare providers, physicians view the unit of treatment as the family, but also respect the patient. And Holly, you've brought up the family a couple of times and communicating the diagnosis to the extended family, but I wonder if each of you could talk about how members of your family reacted to the diagnosis. Beth? Well, I think across the board, the children were devastated. At the time, I had three who were college age or above, and then we have two younger children for whom we are guardians who were late elementary, early high school, I think. Um, I think part of the problem was I had one on deployment in Japan in the reserves. Um, I had another daughter in the Pacific Northwest. We had one son locally, and of course, Mm -hmm. the two younger boys. So we we went to each child. Um, Chris was not able to to be involved in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I had a conversation with each of the kids on my own. Um, Mm. He, you know, I think the greatest loss for him was knowing he was really enjoying our adult children. And I think the concept that he would not be around to promote that relationship was, Mm. was absolutely, he stopped him in his steps. And the kids who are out of town, that's got to have been hard for them. I think it was his sadness. Yeah. Yeah. I could only imagine what it was like to be, I'm sure, pulled, wanting to be home, but also having responsibilities in a life elsewhere. Holly, what about your family? So both of my kids at the time lived locally. Uh, They were 22 and 24. Uh, Both graduated from college. One was in San Francisco. Tyler, my younger daughter, we went out to dinner the night he was diagnosed and he told her. And then he called Haley, who lives in San Francisco, and she's a teacher, and he said he wanted to come up and have drinks with her, which she thought was kind of weird because he didn't do that. But it was really fun. They went out to some really cool place, and and then he said, I have something to tell you. And um, so we're a, our family is such that we, we traveled a lot together. We live in a small house. So they'd spent a lot of time you know, with their dad, and, and so their choice and their desire was to continue to do that. And as I mentioned, we did a lot of trips. We traveled. Carl had some things he wanted to do. It was a little harder. They're grownups. They have, you know, partners in their lives. And so we would set up, he, for example, wanted to do the Grand Canyon, Bryce and Zion. And I set up a trip for us to be able to do all of those and got space in the room so that the girls could come with us, but then just told them, this is when we're there. If you want to come to all or part of this, we'd be happy to have you. But I didn't want to, I couldn't even fathom trying to make it fit with everybody else's schedules. And they, they always, they wanted to be with their dad and be with us and do stuff. And so they would always figure it out and show up. And so we had some really, really additional quality time. We loved to travel together as a foursome. So it was really fun. Um, and we really enjoyed that time together. And then my older daughter, two years or so into it, her partner was admitted to an MD PhD program in another state. And they came down together and he said, I, you know, I don't know what to do. And I, Carl said, you, you need to go do this. You need to live your life. What we agreed was that we would <laughs> fly her home anytime she wanted to come home. And we meant it. 
and she came home certainly once a month and sometimes once every three weeks. And as things got a little worse, she came every couple of weeks. And she would come into town. Interestingly, she would stay at our house and be with her dad. My other daughter who lived close could come and go as she wanted to. And so she would come over, but invariably it was almost... It was very interesting in hindsight to watch. She would come over, but she would do what kids do, get on their phone, start talking. She'd be there for 30 or 40 minutes. You could tell the room started getting a little uncomfortable for her. She'd get up, she'd pick a fight with me, slam the door and leave. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to realize Mm -hmm. and to really be able to accept that and understand that she just was having a really hard time. She could spend time with mm-hmm. her dad, but then it would get to be too much. And the only way she could get out of it was to, you know, pick a fight. And then we would, he and I would look at each other and go, well, <laughs> that was interesting. And she'd slam the door. Um, they both dealt with it a little differently. My older daughter who would fly down said she would cry on the plane all the way home. Doesn't that show Everyone copes uniquely. There's this universal feeling of grief, sadness, loss, but uh, we all handle tragedy and adversity and heartache in such different ways. Let's pause here and wrap up this first part of our two-part series about ALS with Holly and Beth. To hear the rest of the story, just click on Rare ALS Part 2 wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Mandy Rorig, and this is on rare.